again, it comes down to when are you connecting, when are you bonding, and that's you know that's just a lesson for everybody to figure out in their own special way. But that's one of the things that I've tried to do. You're listening to the Teak Nation podcast with Donnie Aldrich, where we hope to educate, inspire, and entertain you with tips and lessons from members of our fraternity. We hope you enjoy our podcast. Thank you for joining us here on our inaugural podcast. My name is Donnie Aldrich. I'm on to serve as the Chief Executive Officer of TallCap Epsilon. Thank you for joining us as we are live from the TKA Leadership Academy 33 in Colorado Springs, Colorado. I am absolutely excited to have a phenomenal first guest on this podcast, and that is the Venerable Grand Prix, Frater Chris Hansen. Thank you for joining us today. Well, Frater Donnie and Teak Nation, it's uh, uh, a tremendous occasion for me to be here, to be uh, a participant in this podcast, uh, but then also to be here at this Leadership Academy. I am so grateful for, uh, for the invitation. You are the first Grand Preakness to be a Leadership Academy graduate. Can you share a little bit about how large of an impact the Leadership Academy has made on your life and what's it been like both to relive that experience and also be here and meet some of these guys that are going through some of the same exact experiences you did years ago? Well, Donnie, it's an amazing experience to come back as an alumnus, uh, as a volunteer, of course, in my role currently as Grand Preakness to come back to the Academy and and just really relive that spirit uh, of what it was like recalling what it was like as a uh, participant uh, and just that uh, amazing awe that you have about everything that you're learning and developing. And so now for myself, coming back 20 years after my uh, actual participation and graduation at Leadership Academy 10 in the summer of 99, uh, there's just even more uh, emotions coming back, uh, time for reflection, uh, just considering so much of what has happened for both the fraternity, uh, for the academy in particular, and then, of course, for me over that same time frame. So it's, uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Can you talk a little bit about, uh, I know one of the unique aspects in, in your experience in the Leadership Academy and something that I recall from discussions that you and I have had is you still carry around a note card that, that you wrote down a lot of things during your academy experience. Can you share that with, with the folks who are joining us, that postcard, that, you, that the note card that you still carry around to this day? Uh, that's true. And this is a story I like to tell in particular here at the academy because it's an activity that still uh, does uh, does come out again. So at my academy, you know, we had a session where uh, index cards had been handed out. And on it, you were asked to write, you know, short-term goals and on one side, long-term goals on the other. And this was at a point in the academy where you had gone through a series of workshops and sessions where you're really expanding your mind and trying to consider what it is that you want to do uh, with this uh, incredible learning experience that you've now gone through. And so for me, you know, I, I took that to heart. And uh, during that activity, you're given the opportunity to spread out and, and find a place where you can actually just be with your thoughts. And I remember going through that still today where I sat uh, and the thoughts that I was going through, and I wrote down some pretty great things about how I'd return to the chapter, how I'd return to school, what I would do there, uh, and then longer term about you know, what my role in the fraternity could continue to be, uh, about living the fraternity for life uh, mentality, uh, professional aspirations, personal family aspirations, uh, and the like. So, Yeah, you, uh, even, you even wrote down about uh, your eventual wife, correct? That is true. I, I had a very uh, profound uh, opportunity there, and I really did set the stage for what would thus far be the 20 years of my uh, post-academy experience in counting, and everything is still 
uh, holding in there, and I have carried it in my wallet every day. And uh, periodically throughout the year, I'll pull it out, look at it, because the opportunity was twofold for me. One, to set uh, aspirations that would help me define the type of man I wanted to be and for whom. Uh, and then, of course, the other one uh, is the opportunity just to have a personal check to say, well, are they still applicable and do I want to change any of them? Uh, how is my life going and uh, where are we? The activity in and of itself is designed to be redone, so it's not necessarily, as I have chosen to apply it, uh, to have one card and carry it for life. But for me, it has extra meaning that way. Uh, and of course, I have set other goals in between, and uh, those have come uh, come and gone as, as, as the years have uh, proceeded. But certainly, it is uh, a valuable part of my memories from the Academy. Uh, and you're correct, I, I still carry it in my wallet. Well, I appreciate you sharing that. You know, as part of these podcasts, we want to entertain, educate, and inspire. That's what we want to do to our membership. Uh, and I think that that story there it definitely can educate our members on the importance of goal setting and having a vision for what you want to accomplish and staying consistent in going back and checking in on that vision. As you said, there's some folks that don't just have that one card. Maybe they have a second card or they adjust and adapt those goals as they move forward. But I appreciate you talking about how it helped to form you as a, as a man and something that you know and the positions that you and I are, are lucky enough to hold when we go and, and visit chapters or if we go to a to a leadership conference, one of the, the most common questions we get is talk about your collegiate experience. So in formulating that man that you have become, which I, once again, thrilled with this medium that we can highlight and showcase, you know, many times we're running between meetings or running between receptions or speaking uh, obligations that we have, and so we don't get a chance to share and highlight the people like you that, that serve our great fraternity. So can you, can you bring a little bit of that to life, your collegiate experience that you had at the George Washington University uh, and how that shaped you, that your Teak experience there into the man you are today? Oh, phenomenal. Yeah, it, that is a, a frequent question. Like, what was your collegiate experience like? Like, how, how did you uh, grow in the fraternity and, and decide to take this uh, volunteer path that you've you have. And so, yeah, for me, you know, uh, being a collegiate at George Washington University, um, you know, I, I initiated as a freshman into the Alpha Pi chapter in the fall of 96, uh, made uh, full advantage of my full four years there, graduating in 2000. Uh, for me, you know, the fraternity experience was one that was almost near instant. When I uh, moved into my college dorm room, uh, which I think I did early, like one or two days before um, the actual full move-in had occurred because there was opportunities that would allow you to do that. Uh, it was something that I needed to take advantage of because I was going to be one of six uh, college freshman men uh, in a corner suite of the freshman dorm. And so uh, naturally there's six beds and in that situation you're like, which one do you want? Do you want to have an early pick or do you want to be stuck with whatever's left? So I took advantage of that. And as moving in, of course, uh, two of the people that I had come to meet uh, near instantly uh, on that floor were the RA and one of his buddies. Uh, of course, it would go on that they were teaks uh, that I had learned later on uh, as, uh, as the, you know, the days turned into the first couple of weeks of my freshman experience. Uh, and that you know, got me uh, off on the foot of, of becoming a teak and, and meeting men of, of character and what they did on campus and what they stood for. Uh, and then, of course, another part of that was uh, an opportunity that I had to join the, uh, the men's club volleyball team uh, for a period because one of those, those men, Brian Tate was his name, uh, was on that club. And that was another part of my collegiate experience. 
I also uh, was a biology major, and so that uh, came with its series of, of laboratory classes, uh, late night responsibilities with uh, you know science uh, uh, research and uh, prepping for these big exams. Uh, but I didn't do that alone. So you know another one of my great fraternity brothers, Dan Cox. Uh, you know, he and I took a lot of the same classes together. We were roommates uh, for four years, and uh, that really helped us with our study habits uh, and having that, that great parallel there. So he went on to become a, uh, uh, a medical doctor, uh, and I have gone on to, uh, to become a research scientist at the NIH. So I think we've both uh, fared pretty well there. So my collegiate experience was, was action-packed. I also had, uh, uh, I think, three jobs. Uh, sometimes they all overlapped. So in addition to all of what I've just described and becoming a uh, chapter officer and, and all of that and striving for good grades, uh, you know, I, I worked at the student, um, you know, athletic center. I worked in the department of medicine, uh, you know, in and around classes uh, and, uh, you know, had just other odd jobs just to make sure that I was making ends meet, that I'd be able to uh, order pizza on Friday, right? Right. Or, uh, or be able to afford dues in the chapter. <laughs> so, you know, those sorts of things still, um, you know, are traits that come through today. You, you do what you can. Uh, you maximize your opportunities. You might not know you're doing it. Uh, but, you know, multitasking is also maximizing what you can do. So uh, that's a, I guess that's a glimpse into uh, part of what my collegiate experience is. is. Uh, but certainly, uh, you know, there's probably more that I could touch on uh, if we wanted to. <coughs> right, yeah, that's, well... And even that, that little piece there, I think, helps to give a glimpse that, once again, you don't get the time to share and all the interactions that you've had over the last few years. You know, as you highlighted, you've always been, I would say, a go-getter, someone who's always real willing to jump in. And so what drove you to want to get involved in volunteering for the fraternity? Obviously, when we graduate, <clears throat> there's a lot of things pulling on us, getting that first job. Uh, for some people, starting a family, getting married. Uh, buying a house, all of the, the things that they get thrown at us very quickly once we graduate. What drove you to, to find time and to make time to continue to be engaged with the fraternity at a volunteer level? Yeah, absolutely. Well, for me, um, one of my ambitions uh, coming through the academy uh, as a junior going back and having a final senior year at the chapter um, was to return uh, sort of the mentoring, the volunteer support um, the growth opportunities that I had had in the fraternity uh, when it was my opportunity to do so. So upon graduation at GW, uh, I took one year to really kind of, you know, figure out what real life was supposed to be like. Uh, but um, at the same time, I joined the, uh, uh, the D.C. Area Teak Alumni Association that very summer. And so that was my opportunity to, to sort of meet alumni, start that networking opportunity, see what um, you know, the fraternity has to offer once you leave your chapter. Uh, fortunately, being in the D.C. area and staying there after graduation, uh, and still to the, to the greatest extent uh, today even, you know, there's, there's people that come through that city uh, all the time, and they might not be from there initially, they might not be from a chapter that was there, uh, but certainly they're teaks, and so that connection is always true. So for me, that first uh, year uh, was an opportunity to figure out what being an alumnus is about. Uh, and then after that, I, I started jumping in. I became a volunteer with my home chapter at Alpha Pi. Uh, I grew into a regional role uh, on a province team, uh, helping uh, other chapters in the, uh, the greater Washington area, like University of Maryland and uh, George Mason, and even up at Towson, uh, up by Baltimore, that sort of uh, opportunity. And then as I grew through the Alumni Association, uh, leadership opportunities, becoming president and serving there for four years, 
uh, everything really kind of continued to develop for me. And that's when in the summer of 2007, based upon my local regional volunteer experiences, uh, my alumni association activities, uh, in the summer of 2007 at Conclave in Las Vegas, that's when the opportunity arose for me to be uh, a candidate for the Grand Council. And as things came to pass, uh, I was elected. And that's what my last 12 years have been about, serving on the Grand Council. Oh, there's a lot of great things there, and I want to discuss a little deeper that, that election process and how you came to 2007 in, in Las Vegas and how that opportunity came. One, one piece I do want to touch on is how important for those who are listening to this, how important those area alumni associations are. You know, we, we have a number of men that, yes, they went to a chapter on, in one part of the country and were initiated. Then life pulls them in different directions. And for them to know that we do have many strong area alumni associations for folks from all different chapters. And uh, I know the great work in D.C. that Dan Pelletier, a number of folks have done to drive that alumni association. And we have those, I know, in many other corners of Teak Nation. And so I encourage people to reach out, whether it's our office or local groups around, and, and uh, to seek out some of those opportunities. A lot of them, as you would, I'm sure, confirm, are many of them are social, and also there's mentoring opportunities as well, or just networking receptions that a lot of these groups have, uh, versus the day-to-day volunteering of being a chapter advisor or, or being involved as an officer in an alumni association. That's right. Oh, absolutely. Well, and, and if you want me to add here, you know, the power in the the area alumni associations is that you get exposure to beyond your traditional collegiate chapter experience. You know, uh, you grow outside of your initial teak bubble. And so as we encourage collegiates to go to regional leadership conferences and conclave and the Teak Leadership Academy, you know, for example, which is going on here now, uh, you have the opportunity to expand your horizons about the fraternity. Uh, And too many of our members consider, oh, okay, well, when I graduate and move away from my home chapter, uh, and then they, you know, they selectively forget that there are, you know, the days, the rest of your life that you're still a member of the fraternity. Uh, and you have to seek out that opportunity uh, wherever you go. Uh, now, not everyone is going to end up in D.C., although, you know, certainly we welcome you to come to the nation's <laughs> capital. Uh, we Absolutely. would love to have you added to our alumni association there. Uh, but wherever you go, if it's a, you know, a regional metro area at all, uh, try that aspect. But as well, you know, it's also important the fraternity, our fraternity, has the opportunity to maintain chapter alumni associations. And that is an opportunity for you to go back to your school and, and uh, take advantage of uh, multimedia where you can you know, even have an effect and an influence um, wherever you end up. Absolutely. Well, let's take a dive into the election process and Absolutely. go back to 2007. Can you paint a picture? I, I think that so many members, and, and if I wasn't as lucky as I have been to be a member of the professional staff, I never would have understood the experience of what it's like to go through a Grand Council election process, even how someone eventually, I'm guessing, reached out to you and said, Chris, we think that you'd be a phenomenal member of the Grand Council. Can you just talk about that process of how you were eventually tapped on the shoulder to even consider running, but the, the process of running to be a member of, of our Grand Council? Yeah, the, you know, the uh, candidacy approach to the Grand Council um, is a bit unique for most people. Uh, my story would be potentially a little different than, than others, but without a doubt, because of the Teak experiences and the uh, perhaps reputation that I had built for myself by engaging uh, and being so so active um, uh, since my days as a collegiate. In the summer of 2007, you know the volunteers uh, in the Northeast, what we call Region One. You know we had a regional planning conference, and uh, those of us there were, were talking about Conclave coming up and 
the opportunities that, uh, you know, for those of us to go. And then naturally we started to talk about, well, you know, what have you heard? Like, what's, what's the buzz about Conclave? And naturally that goes two ways. One, do you think there's any legislation that's going to come through that's going to be revolutionary or uh, fun to talk about? Uh, and then the other being grand council opportunities. And at that point, it became clear that some people were going to be, you know, naturally retiring or stepping off the council. Maybe there was an opportunity for some new people to be considered. And I say that because, you know, it was that conversation that really sparked my personal interest in serving on the council. It hadn't been a definite plan of mine as a volunteer to say, hey, one day I want to serve on that council like it was another check mark or milestone. It really was a call to service or, you know, a true opportunity for servant leadership to, to jump in and have an effect uh, at the highest level that our organization has. Uh, and as a younger person, you know, I thought, hey, why not? You know, I've got these experiences. Let's put my name into consideration, go through the process and see what happens. Uh, and then naturally, personally taking care of my, my end of the situation and having conversations, reaching out to folks, talking to people on the current council uh, and staff about the opportunity. And I really developed an approach coming into Vegas to be prepared, uh, to be conversant, to be aware of what the situations were uh, and to put my uh, opportunity uh, for consideration in the best possible light. Uh, and then naturally, uh, for those of you that have either been to Conclave or have read about it or have heard people talk about it, there is a nominations committee that you have to present in front of, which is uh, the majority of them are uh, collegiate chapter representatives. Uh, and you have to connect with them. And you have 10 minutes. And then there's 10 minutes for them to ask you questions. And then you're out of the room. So not, a, not a large challenge, right? Just, just connect <laughs> with 25 to 30 collegiate members you've never met before in 10 minutes. That's correct. So if you've ever, you know, picture yourself going into just a routine job interview, how well do you think you do into 10 minutes? So uh, you, you really have to prepare yourself. Uh, and that's the advice I give to everybody uh, that I have talked to about how to run for council, how to approach conclave and that sort of thing. But that's, I guess, a glimpse into how my, my experience happened in 2007. Uh, and then, of course, every uh, biennium after that, you have a different little approach about how to stay on the council or how to, how to succeed and elevate um, and eventually how to become Grand Preakness if that's how uh, the experience is going for you and if you appear to be the right person for the job at the right time. Well, I definitely want to get to that. I, I want to follow up on what was the feeling like when you were elected, that first time that you were elected, right? You've done some amazing things in the Northeast as a volunteer, right? But to go from that stage to I'm now one of the elected members of the Grand Council, what what was that feeling like at the Grand Inaugural in 2007? It, it was uh, an unbelievable uh, experience, uh, just pure joy and elation. It was amazing because I hadn't expected to, to really win an elected seat, uh, but certainly as it came out and I made the slate and then uh, I was elected uh, as Grand Hegemon. And then it's kind of like what I would imagine people who don't expect to win an Academy Award go through. <laughs> you get up on stage and you're at the microphone and you're looking out at the room and you're like, wow, this is an awesome experience. But it's happening in real time. So you have to say something <laughs> and you <laughs> have to make sure that, you know, uh, if nothing else, you act like you've been there before and carry that about yourself. People, are, just a people are expecting inspirational words yep, in that moment. Right. And so I remember, you know, of course, being gracious and thankful for the opportunity. I think I did say something along about the lines of, wow, the view up here is amazing. And uh, that I really, you know, was going to give it my all and, and work on behalf of the fraternity for everyone uh, that voted for me. Uh, and then, of course, going to the inaugural and being sworn in uh, and all of that and realizing the magnitude of this is an amazing responsibility. 
Uh, and at the time, even I knew that I was uh, potentially one of the youngest people to be elected to the Grand Council in at least the modern era, the fraternity, or even you know further than that, uh, still being in my 20s at the time. And this is when we had the eight elected officers before the opportunity for at-large members or the collegiate advisory chairman to have a vote. And so now we do have um, a whole spectrum of young voices and you know um, older and uh, career professional voices on the council. But at that point, uh, it was almost like I had kind of broken in and changed the uh, the rules of the game a little bit. So then it was the awesome and magnificent opportunity to live up to that, to make sure that this wasn't going to be something that would uh, become a negative experience for the organization. Uh, and then naturally, you know, I, I think I've risen to that, uh, that opportunity and to that expectation. Uh, but that was something that, if possible, all ran through my head. Uh, <laughs> Simultaneously. In, in those very first couple of minutes uh, and at the inaugural. Uh, and then, of course, you kick off that, that Sunday morning in the first business meeting of the biennium. So it's not like you leave Conclave and then like, okay, I'll see you in two or three months at the first meeting. Right. You kick off that, that next day, hit the ground running. So that was an also uh, another uh, awesome opportunity to sit in the room with the people that I had just been elected with or the tenured council members at that point you know, uh, Mark Johnson was the uh, the Grand Preetness uh, to kick off that biennium. Uh, sitting in that room with such amazing people and realizing, wow, this is this is where I wanted to be. I wanted a seat at the table. I got it. Let's go ahead and make the most of it. And explaining to all my peers at that point that that's why I was there I was to make the most of the opportunity and to lead the fraternity forward and to be part of this team, to be a real true asset and to see where we could go together. So you move into this this great opportunity at an extremely young age and. Obviously, as you've continued to ascend up the ranks of the Grand Council, uh, a lot of things have occurred in your life. Obviously, getting married, your, your wife Annie, and you have two beautiful children, Sydney and Taylor, two daughters. How do you balance the responsibilities of being a member of the Grand Council along with your work obligations, along with your family obligations? Uh, as you mentioned, you're a scientist at the National Institute of Health. You've also risen there, I think, rather quickly, especially recently, a lot of great opportunities to be promoted. How do you balance all of that? I know that's something that we have alumni out there who I think are very sharp people who have a lot of responsibilities and don't say, you know, I don't even have the time to volunteer, let alone serve as a member of the Grand Council. How do you make that work? Oh, well, it's it's a uh, it's a frequent question that, that uh, volunteers ask me or even family members or, or professional colleagues when they discover all the things that I have uh, somehow uh, gotten wrapped into, uh, but all in good ways. And, and so for me, it's, uh, it comes down to some, some simple uh, and direct advice that I got from uh, another Teak alumnus about make the most of your opportunity when you're able to be in it. Uh, and so wherever you are, even if you only have a little bit of time, say with your family or at a chance fraternity uh, event, Make sure you're in it in the moment uh, and really deliver for those people at that time uh, because everything is a multitask balancing act of, you know, when when do you get enough sleep or when do you remember to eat lunch? I say this to remind myself. Uh, when do you, you know, have time to plan in advance for that next meeting, either because you're in it or you're leading it? That speaking opportunity, uh, making sure that you're balancing your eight or ten meetings the next day and still getting home in a good time. Uh, it is it is a constant challenge. Uh, it is one that I, I continue to deal with every day, uh, but it's also one that I know I have people that support me through it, uh, and uh, everybody understands that I come out uh, of it personally in a much better uh, outcome 
before having all of these experiences. The fraternity has made me a better father and a better scientist. Uh, my science career has made me uh, a better Teak board member uh, and a better family member and, and, you know, completing the triage there. So uh, it really goes around and through that has really been part of the reason that I've been able to advance in the fraternity and uh, in my professional career at the NIH. Yeah, I, I tend to see that in, in successful people that, that I run into is that they have a lot going on. <laughs> successful people don't have one or two things that they're involved in. They might have eight or ten because it, it balances you and it stretches and pushes you in the different organizations you're involved in to, to be more well-rounded and to give you more skills than you ever would have had before if you just said, well, these are my one or two focus points. Right. And to touch back to your earlier question about what my collegiate experience was like, this was kind of it in a nutshell, too. As an underclassman, I didn't do as well academically because I had all this free time and I didn't choose to use it maybe as wisely as I should have. And then when I came an upperclassman and I became preteness of the chapter and was working all these jobs and stuff, um, candidly, that's when I got my four O's because I figured out how it all fit uh, and that I had to make time for everything and I had to make sure that everything had an intention. And that was something I learned then that has carried with me. Uh, I do like to have time to relax and unwind and, you know, not have to be, quote, on all the time, but also at the same opportunity. When I am on, I know that, you know, things have to fit in, uh, figuring out ways to make the most of uh, every opportunity, including like, you know, my drive home from work. Like, can I make a phone call or can I listen to something that'll improve my opportunity for the next day? Or am I envisioning what it, what I need to do that night or uh, the next day? That sort of thing. So it's, uh, it's frequently, I might not always look like my brain is running 110%, but sometimes that's just, you know, par for the course. <laughs> well... As we fast forward into modern time and the current responsibilities that you have, I can share one thing that I think folks would enjoy a little behind the scenes. A lot of the conversations that you and I have about the fraternity and where we want to go and where we're doing and updates of current things that are happening, a lot of those do happen on those drives that you have home from work, uh, the four and five o'clock calls that we're making between getting home and getting to our children and making them dinner and all those types of things. That's true. Again, it's when you're a parent, you have to figure out how to fit things in and around, like the you know the the uh, customary dinner time, you know after dinner time bedtime routine, that sort of stuff, right? So, I have tried to be protective of that sort of five to seven window uh, of my days uh, and build things you know afterwards into the evening or that sort of thing. So, I think everybody who's a a parent of younger children knows and appreciates that that's the opportunity you have to bond with your kids, to read that bedtime story, to Make sure that you're being dad as much as you can because you're away during the day or you're away on this next trip. And I know I've had a lot of them with the fraternity and with my professional career taking me places uh, for conferences and meetings you know, around the country and stuff like that. So, again, it comes down to when are you connecting, when are you bonding? And that's, you know, that's just a lesson for everybody to figure out in their own special way. But that's one of the things that I've tried to do. Yeah, and how you adapt your schedule. Another conversation you and I had recently – was uh, from 9.30 to 11 o'clock at night because that's, that's what fit in both of our schedules. Right. And I think that that's a lot of people envision business only happens from 9 to 5. And we know, especially in, in our organization, given being in three, four, or five different time zones, that doesn't necessarily always work that way. And sometimes work gets done at later hours of the day or first thing in the morning, the conversations that happen uh, on the way into work. So. That's correct. Another behind-the-curtain piece that I would love for our listeners to hear is, is inside a grand council meeting. I think that, that that is something that 
obviously very few people get to experience, and I think there's a, a lot of intrigue behind what goes on in those meetings. Can you can you share a little light? What goes on in a, in a Grand Council meeting? What type of discussions are happening that folks would, I'm sure, love to hear about? Oh, absolutely. And I would say, of course, before I came onto the council uh, and have for the last 12 years, I had no idea, right? There's this mystique about what the council does and what they, you know, how do they operate and when do they meet and, you know, where do these decisions come from? The council operates uh, every week. You know, there's a series of either emails or committee calls that business carries on from week and month to month to really keep things going. Um, and then we come together for what can be considered our quarterly meetings. And those would be in various locations around the country uh, as we have traveled to try and meet other teaks out there, but also take advantage of previewing a conclave hotel, for example, or those sorts of things. You know, going through headquarters, taking advantage of our awesome facility there and, and the like. So, you know, the, the work of the Grand Council is broken into its committees. Those committees operate. And so then you come into a Grand Council meeting and there's an agenda, there's a perspective that as you go through the year, there's customary business you have to take care of uh, as the fiscal year proceeds. Because some of the business of the council is to make sure that the KRAs are being monitored uh, and being considered, analyzed for what the next fiscal year can become, that the budget uh, is being watched and uh, tweaked so that you can see what the next budget for the next fiscal year needs to consider. Are there new initiatives that need to be built in? Uh, and so this is where feedback from, from you, Donnie, and your, your senior staff plays into the council, you know, the board of directors thought process on how do we help enable you to achieve the success that we, the board, want uh, on delivering for the mission of our organization. Who are our stakeholders, our members, and really what is it that they need, they deserve, and where should they be pushed and coached to make sure that we're achieving more and really delivering more on what we're supposed to be about. So you come into a council meeting, uh, and customarily there's, there's committee reports, there's reports from the senior staff, and then we try to save a good chunk of time for continued strategic conversations, opportunities to look at, you know, what is the, you know, one, three, five, ten-year horizon looking like? What are we hearing from our peers? What are the situations we're encountering today? And what are we doing with the best of our intentions and all of, you know, the best brain power in the room? to consider how we get ahead of the challenging situations uh, before they hit us and we consider ourselves unprepared. So, so much of, of what the council does is in that latter bucket, uh, trying to be aware and cognizant of the changes that culture, society, universities, our peer groups, our, our parents, the attorneys out there, where they want us to go. Uh, and so not only are we just relevant, fraternity has always been relevant to our members for the past 120 years. But how are we delivering and going beyond that? Because the demands for our organization continue to evolve and grow. Our members coming in the door today and tomorrow need some of the same things that the fraternity has always stood for, but they also need so much more based upon how culture and society, family structures are going, and just really wherever they're coming from in their lives. So towards that end, that overall grand pie in the sky idea of really building better men for a better world and, and being there for mental, moral, and social development for our lifetimes. That's what the council is ultimately tasked with and figuring out how to translate that into actions, to metrics or steps that we can do, policies or decisions that can and should be implemented and when. Those are some of the big uh, ticket items that the council is uh, routinely tasked with. So you mentioned KRAs. Can you, can you talk about what KRA stands for? How vital are those to our organization? 
how big of a part do they play in 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 our budgeting process? What big of a, a part do they play in discussions that we're having both between myself as the CEO and you as the Grand Preetness and members of the Grand Council? How, how is that integrated with our chapters and our volunteers? How can you just give some some life to to KRAs? Oh, absolutely. So KRAs, uh, you know, the the acronym that we use for key result areas. So these are the metrics that the Grand Council deliberates upon and sets as the standard for success, uh, literally, for the CEO to achieve for our organization. So as the Council utilizes the John Carver policy governance model, we uh, consider organizational success synonymous with CEO success. And so towards that regard, you, you as a board, we as the Grand Council, have to set expectations that are measurables for the CEO slash the organization to achieve. And so the council then will decide, well, how do annually the KRAs, these key result area metrics, have to grow, uh, evolve, shift, uh, measure different things to be able to get the organization to where we envision it needs to be in that one, three, five, ten year horizon. Uh, from the annual metrics, the CEO and, and the staff that he uh, employs breaks those down into measurables that either on a regional basis or certainly on a chapter level really get down to what uh, each individual contribution can be to help towards the collective whole. When you have large goals, naturally you have to set steps to achieve them. No one organization can raise all the money that we want to help support the St. Jude Children's Research Hospital, for example. So you have to break that down. No one chapter can can initiate the 3,000 plus new members, although that would be a new record and phenomenal. <laughs> if you could do that, uh, I would come and congratulate you in person. But you know, you have to break everything down into smaller steps and then achieve those throughout the, the fiscal academic year uh, and take it from there. So KRAs are something that uh, a lot of thought goes into. You look at what historically has been measured, uh, has it achieved the result that you wanted or envisioned it would? Do you have the right staffing or volunteer structure to support uh, some of your decisions and actions that you envision these metrics would entail? And do you have the resources? And so really under the policy governance model, the KRAs are end statements. Uh, the ends are, you know, what benefit for what people at what cost? And so with that, you have to decide, you know, do you meet all three parts of those metrics? Do you bring all those things together? Uh, and then really, they still stay pointed to the mission of our organization. So for us, is we've built our KRAs that have been established around our Better Men for a Better World end statement, uh, and that has been broken down into, well, how do those KRAs actually address those specific components uh, in, that, in that mentality? Uh, are we delivering uh, on our mission statement, true as well, about mental more and social development for lifetime? Uh, and so all of that gets boiled down into a poster or to uh, a number that our chapters and our chapter leaders receive that our volunteers interpret and say, okay, how do I help to, to guide and, and mentor my chapters to try and achieve them? Acknowledging again that these are challenges because with everything we do, we need to strive for continued excellence uh, and to make sure that we're growing or evolving in ways that improve ourselves individually collectively in our skills as the collective chapters or uh, as a take nation and as an organization. And I think for those who, if you're listening to this podcast and haven't been directly involved with a, a chapter uh, or in an advisor capacity for the last decade or so, it's become the backbone of our annual success is, is the KRA scorecard that every single 
group has and how they're measured. Uh, it's something you can go on our website at teak.org and, and you can actually look at every single group's scorecard rating, which uh, you can actually go over 100% and achieve some bonus uh, if you put in some extra work. So uh, it has become uh, part of the nerve center of how we evaluate where our groups are and the success we're having. It doesn't, doesn't tell the whole story, but it really can highlight for us where areas we need to give more attention as a staff or as a council, invest some more resources to help certain groups who might be struggling. So uh, I appreciate you highlighting that uh, because for, for folks who are maybe getting re-engaged or folks who are already engaged, uh, that is a big piece of how we operate our organization currently uh, and how the, the council formulates those key result areas, hands them to our team, says, here, go, achieve these great things. And how do we break that down for the collegiate member at his in his bubble at his college or university? And so thank you for highlighting that. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for joining us on part one of our podcast with the Venerable Grand Prix and Estrada Chris Hansen. Please join us for part two, where we will get into further discussions about the challenges that he has addressed as the Grand Preakness.